Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hall of the Golden Hours Podcast. And listen, man, this is a quick little GDP minute. Before I talk about our guest today, you guys do know that we are on Alexa, the Amazon skill. So if you go into your skills and games apps on your Alexa app and you search up Golden Deer, dude, we have our own skill and it will play like every day. It's sweet. I promise. I actually probably got to talk to Big Fresh because I think we have to do some sort of technical check-in with that. Anyway, man, listen, we just ran an episode with Mike Aponte. And I want to give C-Mac a big shout out to lining up the episode. It was him who went out and said, dude, Mike would be a sweet guy for the show. And I said, all right, let's do it. Mike was a really cool dude. And he's known as MIT Mike because he was part of that MIT Blackjack team. Um, if you guys have ever seen 21, the movie, Mike was one of the founding members that the movie was inspired after. He's a super smart guy, covered a lot of stuff. It's a, a longer episode, and he discussed kind of how card counting works, how he kind of started to stroke it, what he was thinking when he realized card counting was sick. He talked about how Mike Tyson really changed the game for the casino game for him and his team and he talked about how he can't really ever go to casinos again because they all know him as like the best card counter ever and uh also talked about a simulation theory which is pretty interesting and he's in california but he's got that boston tie-in so we said hey this is a boston show let's get the boston boy up here you feel me nonetheless man if you guys enjoy this thought it'd be a little bit different just please share it with a friend and uh I guess subscribe. I've never really asked anybody to subscribe, but subscribe, and we're going to keep it rolling. We've got a big episode tomorrow. So that is GDP Minute. Everyone have a great day, and hit me in the DM if you need anything from me. Well, not if you need anything from me, but hit me in the DM if you're trying to communicate about the show or, like, business or something. <laughs> anyway, man, all right. All love. Big Will Chief. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. So, hi, my name is Micah Ponte. This is my golden hour. Sweet. Um, before we begin, I got Chris on the phone, who, who is the mastermind who set everything up. And then I also have our other producers, Brendan and Sarah Slugs. You guys want to say what's up to Mike? Hey, Mike, how are we doing? Hello, how are you? Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, great to meet you guys. So. So your apartment's like perfectly symmetrical, man. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I actually was never, never into video calls. And funnily enough, I started doing them in January because one of my clients is big into them. I kicked in and as you know, it's kind of part of the culture now. <laughs> I know. I, I actually hadn't even heard of Zoom until the virus hit. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive because I had used some prior ones in past years and I never really liked them, but the Zoom is just so reliable and just really easy to use. So. It's awesome. Well, hey, we uh, for this episode, the researchers were on it the past two days, man, and we tried our best to come through with some really good points. And so I, I watched... Um, Actually, before we move on, you want to just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Sure. Let me, you know, my AirPods keep cutting in and out here. 
Oh, so I'll formally introduce myself. I'm Connor. I'm glad we met, man. My name is Micah Ponte, and in my past life, I was one of the leaders of the MIT card counting team, which a lot of people might be familiar with in the movie 21. So these days, you know, I took some of the most valuable lessons I took away from that whole experience was the importance of kind of identifying the right data and then quantifying it in the right way to make better decisions. So I work in analytics and machine learning to help companies and organizations uh, make more informed decisions. And when you were growing up, did you always have a knack for cards and gambling or is it something you kind of just picked up along the way? No, you know, people naturally assume I was into cards. I never was into card games. Uh, the only card game I played <laughs> was War. which Classic <laughs> game, though. Yeah, it doesn't really have uh, any skill to it. Yeah, so growing up, uh, my brother and I, we were just into school and sports. That was our, our big thing. So, yeah, never into card games. Uh, and people might think they, – some people think it sounds funny when I say this, but I'm not a gambler. Like, I don't know if I would have necessarily ever set foot in a casino, much less played, because uh, gambling just – doesn't appeal to me it's kind of irrational but calculated risk that's a completely different thing so obviously card counting completely changes the whole game of blackjack well when you were up here in our area where would you guys gamble would you send it all the way down to rhode island actually the casinos weren't in a rhode island um weren't around back when we first started playing interestingly enough it was foxwoods when they announced that foxwoods they would be building a casino there. That was the whole catalyst for um, the creation of a startup called Strategic Investments. And most people don't know this. It was, they raised a million dollars and the whole gate and the whole business plan was to recruit MIT students, train them to count cards, and then set them loose on the casinos. Um, so at that time, it seems such a long time ago, there weren't really that many casinos in the country, relatively speaking, Atlantic City, uh, Vegas, you know, Tahoe, I think Mississippi. Um, but other than that, there weren't, there, there was no Indian game or, and a lot of these riverboats weren't around. So it was kind of great timing that right when the team got put together, all these casinos started to proliferate across the country. But yeah, Foxwoods was actually the, the whole catalyst. And that's the first casino I ever played at. Uh, and then as you guys know, not too long after that, Mohegan Sun uh, opened up there as well. Well, you know Boston has a brand new casino, right? <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, people always tell me about new casinos uh, opening up. Fortunately, my card counting days are over. I'm like probably the most well-known card counter, so <laughs> I wouldn't last very long. <laughs> have you I guys, have you, have you been? To yeah, it's... I've also been to Vegas, so it it's modeled very similar to a casino on the strip. It's a wind casino, so yeah. the developers are pretty much the same. And it was a really big deal when they brought it here. And I'm and just obviously because the virus, it's closed. But it's even fun if you're to come back out to Boston ever just to walk through. It's like really an immaculate venue. Ah, uh, well, that's not surprising given it's a a wind property. Yeah, so. money, wealth. <laughs> Well, um, when you were, what did Kendall, I mean, we kind of talked about this on the phone a little bit, but what did Kendall Square look like a little bit when you had 
just got to the city? Kendall Square. I mean, it, it's it was definitely different than it is now. Um, now it's much more uh, much more bustling, a lot more developed. I think I was actually in Boston for the first time in a while uh, about a year ago, and so of course I had to visit some of the old haunts. <laughs> so like Kendall stomping Square. grounds. <laughs> yeah, Kendall Square and Central Square are just they've been developed so much um, since, you know, my first days at MIT. And luckily it felt good though. The campus itself seemed relatively the same, um, especially the infinite corridor. If you're familiar with it, that seemed exactly the same. I'm not actually, what is that? Infinite corridor, like through the, it's this really long uh, uh, corridor that you kind of enter right across from, uh, Mass- if you cross Massachusetts Avenue from one side and, you know, it's kind of the well-known shot of the steps leading up to the pillars and the dome. Um, but students, yeah, you, everyone, you have to walk, you go through that corridor to go to your classes and go to one side of the school to the other. Well, so as I was telling you on the phone, so I have a secret hideout at MIT that nobody knows about. I don't think the school administration really knows about either, but if I ever, ever, ever have to do like very focused work, I'll do it there. And I realized at some point that all the buildings there are connected. It's like a huge maze. And so I don't know the name of the building, but you know, if you like, you're coming off Memorial Drive, you come into the math building, you take a left and you like walk all the way back. It like looks like a little Dr. Seuss village. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, and you're talking about on the main level. Yeah, it's on ground level. It's just like uh, a cluster of buildings that actually looks straight out of like Cat in the Hat. Uh, are you talking about on the inside or the outside as far as kind of this Dr. Seuss look? Outside. outside. Okay, yeah. Outside, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> It, w- it was the most like weirdly distorting thing I'd ever seen. I thought I was like actually losing my mind. I was like, where am I, man? This is wild. So you, you go there from time to time to get away, get a little quiet, well, quiet time. Well, no one really talks yet on my tea, so it works. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good to hear because I, I wonder, because obviously, you know, since with security, you know, security has really changed. I often wonder what it's like. Uh, in terms of moving around campus uh, and so forth. Uh, but it's good to, to hear you could do that. Because we actually, as a team, one of our, the big keys to our success, we would meet twice a week uh, in an MIT classroom, just, a, you know, an empty one and practice, you know, as a team. So I often, sometimes I wonder if that's even still possible, but it sounds like it is. Um, I don't know if they lock all the door, all the classroom doors come evening. Well, let's not tip them off. Let's not tell them that. Um, do you want to, can you just give a, a quick summary of kind of your story and how everything kind of went down? I'm sure you've told the story a gazillion times, but I just want to inform people. Sure, sure. Well, the, I mean, it's interesting because the whole, you look at the whole history of card counting actually is very in, largely entwined with uh, MIT because actually the, the father of card counting was a, a man named Ed Thorpe, and he was a professor at MIT back in the late uh, 50s when he had a hunch that blackjack could be beat. 
you know, if you could figure out the formulate the right system. So he actually had a big advantage in that he had access to MIT supercomputers, which at the time were like the biggest, baddest uh, computers. I don't know if you, you might've heard of them. They, they're the ones that had the huge tubes and took up multiple floors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, what's funny is that th that supercomputer is probably weaker than any of our uh, our smartphones, but they were the they were the best thing going that day. But one of the great things about computers is they're great at they can simulate things really fast. So one uh, everyone's heard that term, the long run, right? The long run, but most people don't have a good concept of what the long run is. It's not like in blockjack, for example, it's not like one weekend of play or a month. I mean. We're, you really want to get out this to the millions, millions of hands, right? So obviously it's not really feasible for somebody, you know, if you to conduct an experiment to deal out millions of hands, right? And see how certain decisions affect the outcome. But a computer can, right? Because blackjack is, it's such a well-defined game, right? The rules. And so with the, with the use of the computers, Thorpe was at one able to verify that basic strategy was correct and basic strategy actually um, was derived by some army mathematicians in the mid 1950s. So that's the first thing that Thorpe did was confirm that basic strategy does increase player advantage, but then he wanted to take it a step further and, and see if there was some type of betting strategy that could give players a, a bigger advantage. And so that's when he discovered that different groups of cards in blackjack impact the game differently. So in, basically at a high level, high cards are good for the player because those are what gives you blackjack that pays three to two. <laughs> Hopefully you're playing at a casino that pays three to two. Um, and then also when you double down and split those high cards are better cards to draw, right? And then conversely, the low cards favor the dealer over the long run because the dealer is less likely to bust when drawing low cards. And then also the fewer blackjacks that are dealt, that's better for the dealer, because if you think about it, the dealer doesn't get the same payout on blackjack, right? The dealer only takes whatever you bet as opposed to the players who get, they get a bigger payout than what they than what they risk. And then you have the neutral cards, the seven, eight, and nine, right? Which relatively speaking, don't favor the house of the player. So. Uh, but in any number of decks, whether you're playing double deck, six deck, eight deck, there's an equal number of high cards and low cards at the start of a new shuffle. But as soon as the dealer starts dealing, right, that balance is going up and down, right? So that's, that makes it very different than the other casino house games like roulette, right? Every time you spin a roulette wheel, it's a brand new ball game. You know, what's happened in the past gives you no insight as to what's going to happen next. But in blackjack, it stands to reason that if a lot of low cards have come out, a, bit, a surplus, then there has to be more high cards remaining, right? If you've counted correctly. And then that's when the player starts gaining the advantage and then you just wager in line with your advantage. Um, so that the general idea is to bet little or nothing when you don't have an edge and then bet proportionally more as your advantage increases. Um, now with our, our team, we actually, we scaled it up and made it a business. Um, so with strategic investments, that company slash team actually failed 
I got recruited on the tail end. I made it through training and passed all the skills tests. But not too long afterwards, they ended up dissolving the team. Now, how we old did you lose it? Starts. How old was I? I was 21, I think. Yeah, most of the team was 21. Obviously, 21 or older. Obviously, you have to be 21 uh, to gamble. So, yeah, it was at the start of my senior year. And you had no plans of getting into this beforehand? No, I didn't even know um, that card counting was a real thing. I think growing up, I had heard of it, like, but you hear a lot of things. And then what's funny is my, is either my freshman or sophomore year at MIT, uh, I happened to watch the movie Rain Man. I don't know if you've ever seen it. <laughs> classic. Definitely classic. Uh, great movie but like pretty much everyone who watched it i thought the same thing like one wow that would be so cool to be able to count cards um but i didn't realize like most people it doesn't give you any true insight into what card counting is about because one it makes it seem like you have to have a photographic memory to count cards so i have a good memory but not photographic but that's that's one of the myths about card counting you're not actually memorizing the cards at all and then it made it seem kind of illegal, right? Which is, that's a really common theme in, in movies and, you know, drama series that depict card counting, just to make it seem sexier. I mean, card counting is, it's 100% legal. Um, but yeah, at that time, I thought it was just a cool thing. I didn't really think much of it at all. But little did I know, um, you know, three, three years later, I would actually kind of find out what it was all about. And so how are you initially recruited to the team? They're like, hey, this guy, Mike, this is the whiz kid, man. We need him on the squad. It was just for, uh, from one of my best friends. Um, kind of pulled me aside and told me he had joined this card counting team. So at first, I, I mean, I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> so I didn't even know card counting was a, a legitimate thing, much less a team, a business. Uh, but of course... You know, I didn't have anything to lose just to find out uh, more about it. So I attended a team meeting and then I quickly saw like, wow, this is, wow, this is a real thing. Like it's organized. And when they explained the system of it to me, it made complete sense, right? It's like a mathematically proven system. And the whole beauty of professional blackjack is that for every single decision in blackjack, there's one and only one correct decision. Right. It's there's no gray area. So it's a lot different than poker. Like poker is the only other game of skill, gambling game of skill. But poker is a lot different because you're competing against other players. Right. So it can really vary. Right. There's a lot of gray and maybe you get good at the lower stakes in poker. But then, you know, I know some professional poker players, when you move up in stakes, your strategies that you used before don't work anymore. Right. Um, and then you have to almost relearn the game. Whereas in blackjack, one of the things I love about it, it's completely black and white. Because if you think about it, the dealer, your opponent is like a robot. The dealer has to do the exact same thing every time, right? There's no, you know, you don't have to try to figure out what the dealer is going to do. So everything's clear cut. So on our team, we actually had a kind of our philosophy in terms of our training and skill development is to get your skills to the point where you actually never made a decision 
And what I mean by that is that it's everything's kind of a matrix, right? Like 12 versus three, what would you do if you, if you are a player and you have a total of 12 and the dealer has a three, uh, what do you think would be the correct play there? Mike, you are asking the wrong guy. I don't have the math <laughs> brain like you, man. I do not want to embarrass myself on live air. <laughs> no, well, you know what's okay? It's like I didn't figure that out. Like that's that's the thing. Like in blackjack, decisions like that are not intuitive. Like the human mind's not capable of figuring it out. That's why the computers did, right? The simulations. That's not something you can just kind of do uh, with the formula. But the computers, for example, can play take 12 versus three, play it out a billion times uh, standing it, and then you know store away that net result and then play it out another billion times when it hits it, right? So store what that would you do in that situation? You would hit, the correct plays to hit. And the reason I chose that hand, that is one of the most misplayed hands in blackjack because a lot of players will stand it. And then, there's also many other players that know you're supposed to hit, but then they just kind of go back and forth, right? Just kind of, you know, they're not consistent in how they play it. But I didn't figure that out. Um, our team didn't figure it out. That was figured out, you know, years ago um, through, you know, the computer simulations. It just determined what is the best, which decision gives you the best expected outcome. It doesn't guarantee you're going to win the hand, but. 12 versus three is a losing hand, but if you hit it, you're going to lose a little less often uh, versus standing it. So that's, everything is like a clear cut. This is the best decision, right? So if that's basic strategy, that's the whole foundation of professional blackjack. So you teach this now. Is it, is it frustrating for you teaching people these strategies because your brain from what I'm gathering, moves at a much faster pace and a much more calculated pace than mine. So is it like really annoying trying to explain this stuff to people? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I love, I actually, I really enjoy teaching, actually. Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of uh, made for, I'm very patient. Back with the team, I was one of the guys that did training. So I've trained a lot of people from ground zero and I really enjoy it. Um, and these days, I really, since I can't, my skills are as good as they've ever been, but obviously I can't play. So this is a way that kind of keeps me connected. And I really enjoy meeting people that are really serious about learning how to play, right? Because I, I look back upon it, you know, a lot of things in life is, is circumstance, right? Being lucky, you know, getting some, some fortunate opportunities. And then, then, you know, it's up to you whether you're going to capitalize it. But I look back and like, how lucky was I to get recruited onto the Clark County team? I mean, that's kind of unique to say the least. And so I had that really special opportunity to learn, you know, everything about it inside out. Um, so yeah, I like to share that knowledge with people that are really serious about it as well, because otherwise they're, they're in a bit of a vacuum. They, well, they are in a vacuum because it's amazing these days with how much information is available when it comes to gambling and card counting. There's so, there's so much little, there's so much misinformation um, out there. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons why casinos make so much money, right? It's humans sort of can lose their mind a bit when it comes to gambling. They also, their marketing casinos are able to market with integrity 
based on some of the like worst qualities to that humans have like gluttony and greed but it's cool with casinos like this is where you go to to really explore your wild side man yeah the casino environment is fascinating it's this really it's this intersection of human psychology like all of our blind spots and, and biases and emotions and it's and this pure mathematics right because uh and but the casinos they depend kind of equally on both right that's what how they make the money right the the house edge that's the engine that drives right that's the engine that drives uh, their revenue but then as far as on the marketing side what gets people come in it's that human psychology <laughs> you're right it's the excitement the greed and you know the fear comes in there too right once you start playing uh it all all comes together so that was one of the most that was one of the most interesting things when i actually made it through all the training and started playing casinos it was it kind of blew my mind observing other players like how did they arrive at their decisions and then they really hold tight to the way they their belief system even though it's completely wrong right i mean that's just a human nature thing right you'd have to like justify the way we justify our actions or, or our beliefs even though they're not founded on anything in some cases not founding on, on anything substantive um but yeah so in in all of your time in casinos what's like the wildest thing you've seen just because casinos are the most insane collection of characters known to man like have you just seen someone like okay that's my mortgage see ya yeah, it's, you know, I've kind of seen both ends. It, it is a bit sad because I have seen people that have, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right, that they're betting, yeah, they're betting like, betting money that they can't afford to lose, right? And then I've, I've had people, a number of people back in my playing days that would ask me, like in Atlantic City, that was one of uh, the first, uh, one of the first places I played, right? Um, yeah, there was more than one occasion where people would ask me for a butt for money for a bus ticket back home, you know. And I knew they weren't trying to scam me. They literally did not have any money because they had lost it all. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, I guess there were the people that could afford it, like the whales, right, the high rollers. And it was just kind of crazy to see, um, you know, the money they're wagering, but then it was nuts to me that like for example the count could be really negative right and and even more so in the house's favor and then they'd be betting you know putting out fifteen thousand dollars right and uh it was so i mean the good thing was they they these people could afford it but at the same time I'm like wow yeah it's interesting and a lot of the a lot of the a lot of those high rollers it's interesting because they are really good at, and successful at what they do in terms of their businesses, but that same mentality and approach, it goes completely out the window, right? As soon as they step foot in a casino. Yeah, so where does ego play into the success of a blackjack player? Like you have to be totally egoless? Well, I mean, ego factors, well, Ego, well, ego factors in is a huge factor when it comes to gamblers, right? And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the one of the traps, right? Because 
humans, we're, we don't like uncertainty, right? <laughs> so that's why we, if we're uncertain about it, we have to plug in that uncertainty with the belief, right? We're like, oh, this is how 12 versus three. Uh, if you're really honest, you would say, when you were honest, right? You said you didn't know, right? Um, people, your average uh, blackjack player would say, oh, you stand and that's because I want to let the dealer bust. It's not based on anything, but they just plug in some belief. And then, then there is an ego thing, right? People like believe that, that they're a lot better than they are. Uh, but you're right on the flip side, professional blackjack player, um, there's no ego in that sense. The only ego that comes in in a positive sense, it came in for me and a lot of the successful players on our team is the, just that um just that desire to master the system right so there was a, a healthy like competition kind of culture in our team in terms of the training um and that was all measured through the training so that's where the ego came in a, in a positive sense because my goal was to what i really enjoyed about professional blackjack was executing the system flawlessly in a casino while at the same time doing it in a very natural way that completely pulled the casino. So you had both the science, but there also was kind of an art to it as well. When things had started to pick up for you, like what was that, what was that moment like where you're like, wow, like look at the money I can make because I just understand the system. And, and one more question, when you had started, what were your, before you understood that professional blackjack was possibly a career path what were you trying to get into good question well i answer that second question first um yeah you know i wasn't uh i definitely was not a focused student at mit it was it's amazing like in high school you know i always knew i wanted to go to a good school um and i think like in my senior year after having visited mit i uh, MIT is definitely my first choice, but then it really wasn't until I arrived at MIT that first week, I realized, you know, I'm not sure exactly what I want to study. Because, you know, through, you remember back in high school, you don't really have that many options, right? As far as what you take. Um, Dude, I had no clue what I wanted to do when I was 18. I don't think any rational teenager knows what they want to do with their life at 18. Yeah, but you know, one of the mistakes I made is that we we all know those people, like I had, did have classmates. There are those fortunate that know exactly what they want to do. Like I had a classmate, uh, Jane, who both her parents were doctors, right? And she knew that was her goal to be a doctor. She was going to do really well um, in school and go to med school. And she was so focused. And yes, yeah, not surprisingly, she... <laughs> She had like a perfect GPA and ended up going on to John Hopkins uh, Medical School. But you're right. Most people aren't like that. And one of the mistakes I made is I just kind of got caught up. I always had this latent anxiety. It's like, wow, I, I felt this pressure to have everything figured out when, you know, in hindsight, that's naive, right? You got to, it's good to be focused, do the best at what you're uh, working on. But yeah, it's just kind of the beginning of a, a whole journey but yeah i was um unfocused i'd switch majors several times before settling on on uh, economics um but i did certainly when i got recruited i certainly didn't cross my mind that card counting could be an actual profession it was just 
and I don't think there's anyone, not many guys, college guys who would not you think, wow, that's really cool. I gotta, I, you know, gotta learn more, you know, about that. So, and then I'm, you're, you're, what was your first question again? It was. It's a great question. <laughs> kind of forget, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, none, nonetheless, um, hey, C-Mac, you, you got a question for Mike? Yeah, I guess, I mean, and you've already touched upon it a little bit, Mike, but I do think it's an interesting perspective as a gambler and a blackjack professional, whether you think that the skills you've learned from the blackjack tables, the nights in Vegas, are there any big takeaways that go along in the business world or the world in general? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I talked about it a little bit at the top, but yeah, the big, big takeaway, and I wasn't obviously thinking in this context when I was going through the experience, but when you're making, particularly in the business world, one of the things when I got into, after I got forced into retirement, I, when I got into consulting and I started meeting um, like C-level people, I was just amazed that they were making decisions uh, similar to like gamblers at the blockchain tables, kind of based on conventional wisdom, you know, assumptions, uh, ego. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ego <laughs> uh, that can come in with C-level people. And then one of, the, one of the things that can happen, like, for example, particularly uh, with marketing is that they end up marketing to themselves, for example, right? Instead of yeah, they don't take the time to get the data from their target market. It's amazing. It seems like such an obvious thing, but they're like, oh, I know, I know what's best. Um, really? So, yeah. That, so, so you're saying that that's just very, very interesting to me. So you think some of these top level executives, they don't even gauge the con consumer taste when making marketing decisions in your experience? No, no. A lot of them do not. Many of them. Um, many of them do not do that. Like, for example, um, I met a CMO of a company that, uh, it's a company you've heard of, but I won't name that had launched the whole product line the year before. And the whole catalyst for that was, um, her, um, her daughter's best friend, they were in high school at the time, thought, had this idea. And then she she liked it too. And they ended up launching this product, whole product line uh, that ended up being a big bust. And I remember I was like, wow, I mean, that's talk about, <laughs> talk about making a big gamble, right? Um, because in the end it doesn't like, so one of the things when I work with clients, it doesn't matter what I think, like my subjectivity, right? And the client's subjectivity is more important than mine, right? Cause they're the client, but in the end, there, the, sub, the subjectivity that matters most is the customers. Like that's the people you're trying to reach and influence. So you, you should probably know what's most important to them, and then what type of messaging is going to have appealed to them. What type of product features? Um, but yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, a lot of times, company. I would say most com most companies do not take the time to get that type of. Uh, research and i think yeah identifying going back to the card counting like identifying the data that is important so like in blackjack 
players, for example, they'll they'll keep track of like how many hands they've won or lost, right? And adjust do their betting strategy based on that. You're probably familiar with betting progressions and there's different variants, but, but that type of information is useless. It doesn't, the only data, the only data that matters is the, is the count, the high versus the high versus low count. So that's step one, identify the right, the data that's meaningful in terms of the outcome you're trying to achieve. And step two is once you've identified that, you have to be able to quantify it in the right way, right? Um, in our case, that was through, you know, training, right, building the skills so that we could actually execute it. And then the step three is then make, actually make your decisions based on that, right? Leverage that. Uh, in the card counting, always make the correct playing decision and optimal bet. Um, but to make the parallel of the business world, I've actually had a lot of clients where I quantified the data that was relevant to what they're trying to um, achieve. But then, and they're like, oh, this is great. You know, they look at all the data and insights, but then I kind of know that they don't follow up on it. Right? <laughs> it's like, well, it was like an aha moment, but then, you know, they just get caught up and then they don't follow through and leverage it. So yeah, identifying the right data, quantifying it in the right way, and then following through and, and leveraging it. Those are kind of the three, three big things that you need to do to make uh, data impactful. Now, how would I do that with the podcast? Because I, we have a growing base in Boston. It's been a very organic growth, but I do feel like our content sometimes we have moments where it's like we have banging content and people get really excited about it. But then if I'm if I put out content that I personally like and I think is most valuable to the consumer, sometimes the engagement's the lowest. So how how would you recommend I make decisions? Oh, you know what's so simple? And this is a way, this is a means by which I collect a lot of the data, right? When it comes to that customer preference is send out, yeah, send out a survey, right? Invite your, your fan base to take a survey, right? So the, the great thing, one of the thing, one of the traps that, that we get uh, stuck into is that we end up kind of staying in the middle of the road, right? kind of playing it safe or what we're familiar with. Whereas if, if you're able to get customer feedback, then what you can do is actually just brainstorm, come up with like a, a bigger spectrum of options, some of which might seem like a little even, you know, out there, but before you, but then get feedback from your customers. So for example, um, brainstorm 10, come up with 10 ideas, right? 10 different, 10 things you never really thought of, for example, and then invite your customer base, right? Your, your fans to take survey and get their feedback to see what they want, which one of those, right? So it's a great feedback loop, right? One, you can find out what they want, right? Uh, and then two, it actually serves as a, a bit of marketing. Because uh, I know client, actually for some clients, their customers appreciate the opportunity to. Uh, Give their input, right, and know that they're that that know that they're being listened to. Yeah, I totally get it, and that's definitely something I'm probably gonna talk to everyone about as soon as we end the episode. Man, thank you, I appreciate <laughs> it. 
Um, quick segue back. So I remember my question. When did when did you like really start stroking it? And like at once when you were like in your twenties, did you ever catch a huge game where you're like, dude, I just made like a quarter million dollars. What am I gonna do with this money? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think I mean, I'll answer it at a high level and then a more specific level. Um I think at a high level, we never really got things going until strategic investments ended up failing, right? We, had, we It didn't lose money, but it made very little money compared to all the time and effort that was put into it. Um, so that next year, there was a smaller group of about 10 people, and we started another team. And it's just like in business, we kind of looked at all the, the mistakes that were made the first time around. It had nothing to do with what? mathematics it was just good old like business one-on-one stuff right like you have to recruit the right people right be selective in our case it was about trust was big and then number two we had to recruit people that had some kind of street smarts and social savvy right to blend into a casino right because our our age wasn't working in our favor um but yeah, we had a lot of people the first time around that looked like looked and acted like they were MIT computer science majors. That's not a good thing, obviously, if you're trying to be a high school. You guys walked in the building, I'd be like, yeah, these guys are cheating. I know what's going on here. Well, you know, funny story, like when I, uh, my first trip to Foxwoods, when, because they would let you go even before you passed all the training and, and then practice basic strategy. Once you pass the basic strategy test, just play at a table and bet table minimum. Like it was like five or 10 bucks at the time. And I hadn't met everyone, everyone on, on the team, but then they, but I remember they, I could pick them out. Uh, Cause there were some players that were already quote unquote big players had gone through all the training, but they stood out like a sort of, <laughs> I, I could pick them out, even though I never, I had never met them. So that aspect of it was really important. So we, really uh became selective with their recruiting and then what do you want to do once you hire the right people you want to train them the right way right so we did have training procedures the first time around but management was really lax about it they just thought oh these are mit students like they're smart but you know human nature you're just going to go to wherever the bar is set because especially when you don't have a reference point right card counting is brand is brand new to all of us but they set the bar really low. Um, so we ended up not being as good as we needed to be, right, because of that. And then number three, any business needs to have strategic focus, right? And so we were kind of all over the map because management got enamored with other advanced strategies like shuffle tracking, card steering. And that's because these, in theory, can yield much bigger advantages. But the problem is they're much more difficult execute skill-wise and maybe even more importantly they're so dealer dependent right so like with shuffle tracking shuffles are supposed to randomize the cards but back then you've probably heard this how many things are truly random and some of the shuffles that casinos used are pretty simple actually um but enabled to execute it not only do you have to get good at it but then you need to have a dealer that shuffles perfectly right does that make sense that shuffles a I certain way. Saying. So that's that's something that you don't have control over. Whereas with card counting, there's nothing the dealer can do knowingly or unknowingly 
to prevent you from counting cards, right? Because by law, all the cards, they have to be shown. Um, so we said, you know, the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. Let's focus on the card counting, but then let's make it as strong as possible by using team play, which crazily enough, we never played as a team on strategic investments. We only played individually when we counted cards. But with the team play, it enabled us to scale, right? Scale and then because we would get a lot get to play a lot more favorable counts per hour. Are you familiar with the whole big player spotter strategy? I'm not, but I, I did watch 21 last night and I know that they had like three people at a table wearing masks and wigs and I'm sure that was kind of <laughs> Hollywood, but. Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was definitely Hollywood a bit off, but the, the way it really worked was you would have the big player. So I, I became a big player on the team. That was the person that would put out the money. So, but if I played by myself, there's only so many tables I can count per hour, right? Like four. But if I go in with spotters and the job of the spotters were just to be inconspicuous and they would just, in the beginning, they would just stand and watch the tables, right? And now your sampling rate goes way up, right? Now as a team, you know, for for that single big player, instead of like four tables counted per hour, now it could go up to like 20 especially since the spotters can be much more mobile, right? Because they could be counting a table if the count goes negative and the table next to them is starting a new shuffle, they can just kind of slide out over to that table, right? So if you sample more, much more tables per hour, then you're going to get more favorable betting situations per hour. And then the second benefit, which was just as important, it provided natural camouflage because at the time when I would come into the middle of a, of a shoe and bet big money, card counting never crossed their minds because how could I possibly know what the count was, right? Because I just, you know, hopped into the middle. Um, so once we kind of got those three things in place, right? Selecting the right people, uh, training them the right way, we made our training 50 times harder the second time around. And then a strategic focus, it was like a light switch just went off. And right out of the gate, we just started winning and you asked like when, and so that I remember I went on that first trip for the new team. I played at MGM Grand. First time I had ever done the team strategy. And, you know, I ended up winning like 40, 45,000. And then no one even gave me a second look. And I just thought, wow, this is, why weren't we doing this before? And then we just started, we just couldn't lose. Because in essence, we had become a micro casino, right? We had, had become a casino ourselves. And so in that first year, like we won over like $2 million, right? We were just, it's just maximizing betting, a betting volume at an advantage. Um, we were doing the same thing that casinos do, but casinos, they get, they get to the long run in one day, obviously, right? So many tables going. Um, so a card counting team does the same thing, but it takes longer. And then an individual card counter does the same thing, but it's going to take you know him or her even longer, right? What did you do with the 45K you made that first night? Well, it wasn't my money. It was the team money. Um, we, we really ran the team as a business. So that's one of the things the movie 21 didn't portray at all. It made it seem a little more loosey-goosey. So we kept track of everything. Like, obviously, our win-loss, but beyond that, like, what our actual play, like, we would record, like for example, if a spotter called me into a shoe and the count was 11, 
and there is three decks left. We obviously needed rules of the casino and there are two other players. We would actually record all that information, not during the session, obviously, but after each session, we would, we would meet up and then record all that play. So then after each trip, we would enter all that play into a computer simulator and would say, hey, oh, you guys are rigging the game, man. <laughs> you guys are <laughs> destined to win. Well, that, I mean, that that the measuring it, that that was important in terms of two things. One, to see how we were doing compared to expected outcome, right? But it was also really important for um, how to dis- how to divide up the money. So we had like a investor pool. We were fully self-invested the second time, right? So that was straightforward, right? Uh, the profit would, that part of the pool would be divided among um, the players based on their percentage of investment. And then we had a player pool, right? Now the player pool would be divided among the players based on how much EV they contributed. And that EV we knew from simulating the play. Does that make sense? So, like, if you didn't, if you never really played, then you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get a share. You wouldn't get paid, uh, yeah. But then, and then obviously everything was equitable. Like the big players would get bigger shares than the spotters, right? Because it's a harder job, and they're taking on more risk because they're the ones that are likely to get uh, kicked out. So everything was black and white. We had clear cut, you know, policies, um, and then we also had a um, in latter years, like a management pool um, for people that spent a lot of time training and coordinating trips. Um, so yeah, we kind of had the best of both worlds. It was very much a collegial atmosphere <laughs> with the team. We we're all tight, but we ran it like a business uh, at the same well, time. Well, you say that, but then again, like you're in your 20s. And now you have tens of thousands of dollars in your hands. You you're your buying behavior didn't change whatsoever? Not not dramatically, not as it, as it would for a lot of people. I mean, it was nice that we could actually go out because you know how it is when you're in college, right? I was like, most college students, you don't have, yeah, you can't like go out for dinners, you know, nice dinners. So yeah, we would, we could have like nice dinners, you know, go out for you know, sushi. I don't know if it's still there, but they're on Boylston, this Japanese restaurant called Giyahama. I don't know if it's still there, but that was one of our favorite places. Was um was Bishuteki still there? It's that uh, hibachi spot right in the hotel, like right up the street from MIT. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Where would you go like back in the day? Harvard Square? We actually didn't spend that much time in Harvard Square. We mostly, obviously, right at MIT and then um, actually more just right across the river in Boston. Um, like, for example, I moved into right near, right there in the, uh, right right there in that Back Bay area near Boylston and, and uh, Mass Ave. So that's what, but, but to your earlier question, no, we didn't go crazy at all i mean i think a lot of that's just a testament to our whole mentality right like i think for example when we went on these trips to vegas when i look back i'm like wow we were really focused because you know the casinos would cop us everything like and have sweets and all the food and beverage but we were just that was valuable time we focused on playing like we didn't even we rarely ate at the restaurants in vegas right we preferred room service because well one room service is really good <laughs> but two is fast we could actually order ahead of time because on a 
Friday, Friday evening, Saturday evening, that's prime time, right? To play. So going to a restaurant and having like a two, you know, two hour dinner, I mean, that's just money, right? That's going down the drain. Um, but yeah, looking back, there's a lot of people that, most people that go to Vegas uh, obviously have a different objective. I mean, don't get me wrong, we, we enjoyed it. We definitely enjoyed the perks, right? But it really more in the sense of it just helping us. Uh, we worked hard, right, and stay up late. So it's nice to be able to stay in a really nice suite, you know, have food, really good food delivered to you. But obviously our objective was very different than most people. Yeah, you're a better guy than me, man. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but if I had like 80K in my pocket right now, right, just out of nowhere. Yeah, but we, I mean, as far as like our best, the best weekends, we had like the first, we didn't play in Vegas as, as much as people would think because we needed, we were limited to weekends when there was going to be a lot of other big actions so we could blend in. All right, so back then we were so happy when uh, Mike Tyson got out of jail. <laughs> I know the, I, I know the uh, feminists weren't happy or women's rights and <laughs> justifiably so. But for us, when he find, signed that contract, that was huge for us because his those fight weekends at MGM were like spectacles. He was I'm sure such a huge draw. You're talking uh, professional athletes, celebrities, like. Um, a lot of the whales would come in, people that were betting a lot more money than us, which was great. And then also, so interesting, there were just so many like pretenders and wannabes. <laughs> it was just such a crazy, like I could get called into the middle of the street. I remember during that Tyson weekend, I got called in the middle of the table and I bet two hands of 5,000 and the, and the floor person didn't even ask me to get rated, which I was completely fine with because as a card counter you want to blend fly under the radar as much as possible which is hard to do if you're playing at those stakes right um but those weekends were were kind of nuts and that's where we really made our our money was the the big weekends and we we filled our the rest of the calendar throughout the year with all these casinos that were popping up everywhere indian casinos river boats where it didn't really matter what weekend you they didn't have quote unquote big weekends, right? Uh, per se. But yeah, our first Super Bowl weekend in Vegas, um, we ended up we ended up winning a half a million dollars uh, that weekend. And Bruh. the funny thing is, we the first night we were down a hundred thousand after the first night. It happens, you know. It's just part of statistical fluctuation, right? So that meant, you know, the next day we won like. 600,000, 600, um, but yeah, we had it. Yeah, that was like one of the, the uh, best weekends. For myself personally, the most money I ever won for the team was uh, was about 210,000 um, on a trip to Puerto Rico. And actually we didn't go there for card counting. It was one of those rare opportunities where we had a, I had mentioned card steering, Card steerings where if the casino doesn't cover the back card and you practice enough, you can get good enough so when you cut it, you know exactly, and then they bring it to the front, you know exactly when that card's going to come. Uh, by the time I started playing, that pretty much was gone because all casinos have to do is cover the back card, right? Um, 
but it was a new casino that didn't cover the back card and they would let you cut really thin, like 10 cards off the back, which made you even more accurate. And on top of that, like a lot, most of the dealers are brand new. So they would, it seemed like half the time they would not, not only could you see the back card, but they would expose the second and third card too. So literally for that one round per shoe, like we knew exactly what was coming. So for example, there was one time when I uh, had a hard 19 and I hit it because we knew a two was the next card. Uh, and so it has nothing, it doesn't correlate with card counting at all. It actually makes you look really, really crazy, which is good for cover. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're, that was probably the only opportunity I ever had to do the advanced strategy where it was kind of a perfect storm that lined up for us. And we didn't even play that much. They, and they only had two $2,000 limits, $2,000 limits. And we won over 200,000 because our advantage was so huge. Um, but yeah, they didn't really invite us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, dude, you're a walking advantage. Yeah. Whatever you well, got going no, to your brain, Mike, you got the sauce, man. Yeah, um, it, was, it was fun while it, yeah, it's a wild ride. Well, real, real quick, I, I want to just make sure our producers can ask a couple questions. Um, so how did you, how did they catch on? And when did they say, dude, you can never gamble again? Well, you know, the, the number one thing that that leads to a casino barring you is when you've just won too much money. <laughs> and that could happen within one trip. But then even casinos where you have like a great act, because that was one of the things I've actually talked to casino. I've actually been asked not to play at, at casinos after having played there for a while. And I've had casino managers or shift managers just tell me that there's like, wow, I would have eaten. I would have never guessed their card counter. <laughs> but even when you do have them fooled, at some point when you win so much money, there's going to be someone at some level that's going to say, this just doesn't add up, right? Statistically, like this player should have lost this much and they've won that much. I mean, casinos, no players get lucky and win on one trip, right? That's what keeps people coming back, right? That one trip they happen to win. But when you're doing on a consistent basis, um, so that was the thing that kind of started it right down the road that was unfortunately inevitable, right, at that type of stakes. And then another thing that really changed was because um, we really impacted the way that Vegas does business because they started improving their communication because they didn't really communicate that much with each other, um, but they started to communicate more and they became more efficient. And uh, the sharing of information think about it, that really shortened our potential careers dramatically, right? Because if every casino had to figure out separately that I was a card counter, I would have been able to play for another 10 years, you know, 10 years. But then once you get out there, right, then... Your you name know, was around town, man. Name and picture, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, they picture. must have like bounty posters on all the walls. <laughs> They actually kind of did, yeah. And, and then people found out, the casinos learned that there actually was a group out of MIT. And then in their minds, that created this huge fear. I mean, granted, we actually were um, definitely a threat to their bottom line, but nowhere to the extent as they blew it up. You know, human perception. Dramatized they, it, yeah. 
Yeah, they were, they thought we were gonna, you know, bankrupt the casinos, which never gonna happen. I mean, I, from a financial standpoint, it's much better to be on their side of the tables. Not right now. No, you're right. Not right now. <laughs> I was talking about that with uh, someone. I actually had a call with the, a casino, right, in terms of like talking about how they're going to get their customer base to come back. But yeah, you can argue and the airline airline industry, casino industry, maybe two of the most impacted. And I mean, a lot hotels. Have Hotels, but, uh, but you know, because at least in a hotel, there can be, yeah, hotels too. Restaurants, obviously, but at least there's some nat- natural demarcation. But yeah, with a casino, it's, it's just inherently in its nature, there's constant churn, right? So like, it's going to be interesting for them to figure out, who do we require? How many slot machines of space do we require between each player? How, is there going to be a limit to, at a blackjack table, is it just, going to be two people one has to sit at first base one at third i mean there's a lot of interesting decisions that are going to have to be made how many cigarettes you can smoke in the smoking section because you put yourself (laughs) you're asking for the coronavirus you walk into that smoking section man it's game over (laughs) your lungs are like 10 years older yeah it's brand new well brand new landscape for everyone right but uh, i think the casino industry one of the ones that are going to have, yeah, have even more uncertainty. Real quick, before I, I leave it up to the producers just to close stuff out. Um, very random. What are your thoughts on common simulation theory about like our reality and humanity possibly being a simulation? <laughs> it's interesting. Certainly. Uh, I mean, you, you can't, I guess you can't, I guess rationally, you can't say it's not a possibility, right? Conjuring up like, you know, the matrix. <laughs> it's funny because I was, I talk about, um, you know, I talk about this a lot with like uh, friends about, you know, everyone's heard the word skeptic, right? Skeptic, and skeptic has a bit of a negative connotation, but actually it's not really a negative thing. Like the definition of skeptic is someone who's open to any possibility, but then there has to be, but then it has to be proved, right? So it's certainly interesting. I certainly don't, I'm not saying there's not any proof, but it's like when I was growing up, I was, I like really wanted to believe that there was a Bigfoot. (laughs) Um, But it's still out there. Yeah, I now believe that there is no beef. I would love for there to be a beef, but hopefully I'm wrong. But, you know, the fact that there's never been any, you know, skeletal remains found, like to me, so there's no big. And just like with UFOs, I'm open to that possibility, but I just haven't really seen any hard evidence. Um, I'm, I'm kind of hoping it is, you know, there is life out there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the alternate, the, that simulation, that whole scenario is, it's interesting. It's possible. Does it have any mathematical backing or is it just like Fugazi? Yeah. I don't know if there's any mathematical, you know, backing there. Um, I mean, I remember when I was young, I remember hearing some theory about how we could all, our entire universe could actually be 
at such a small micros beyond microscopic level, we could actually be inside the cell of some other <laughs> organism, right? I mean, I remember thinking, oh, that sounds kind of cool. But but yeah, as far as it, it's definitely interesting, the, the whole simulation theory, but uh, I'm definitely not, a, I don't have any educated insight to provide. You're gonna ask a smart guy like you, man. Hey, um, slugs, get one off, man. Hit him with a haymaker. Yeah. So, um, I was wondering, um, high level gambling and like the World Series of Poker and stuff is mostly dominated by males. So, why is that, and what's it like for females in the poker and gambling scene? Well, I'm not a professional poker player myself, but. I mean, I actually think it's a it's a positive testament to women that there aren't more <laughs> female professional gamblers. I think gam gambling just naturally draws more males into it, just because I think females are they're, they're just more level headed, and they're just more level headed, and and gambling obviously professional gambling has a lot of like there definitely is ego that comes in and real thinking as well like with the mit team we definitely were open to certainly i mean not not just open to we actually did try to recruit more females right um because they could even blend in more effectively males but it just it was something that we just weren't able to do just because um yeah females have better things to do in general um so that, yeah, that was hollywood any, right any movie in terms of yeah, the movie is very Hollywood by design. Um, but yeah, I will say that no, men are not inherently better at professional gambling than females. It's just females aren't drawn to it um, in the same way that, that men are. Oh, Brendan, hit me, dude. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, um, how common is card counting right now in 2020? Obviously not right now, but like when the casinos were open and also is there anything like you see innovative that you could do to maybe make it more secretive or get past all the surveillance and communication that the casinos have? Well, I think card counting um, is just as prevalent as it is before or even more, but done on an individual because the vast majority of Card, the vast majority of card counters do so individually. Um, you know, forming a team has its own challenges, like trust being the big one. Although I will say that even just finding one other person that you trust, I mean, that constitutes a team and you actually gives you significant advantages over versus playing solo. Now, as far as flying under the radar, it's kind of, it's, the best way to do that, it hasn't changed. You just have to be smart about it, right? You need to have, you need to really be observant what's going on without looking like you're being observant. And there are simple things you can do, like, for example, casinos have three different shifts, right? And so each shift, in a sense, could be like a different, right? A different uh, career. And so, but yeah, it's about being It's about being aware of what's going on. If there's ever any doubt that you're getting suspicion, you just take off, right? Because once someone becomes really suspicious of you, it's hard to fool them, 
at that point. You've kind of gone past the point in the return. Um, but, and then the last thing you want to do, another mistake that, that some card counters make is they say, oh, I'm going to stay here and try to fool them. Well, that doesn't want to, that doesn't really work. You just want to take off. So for example, if a casino actually suspects your card counter, there's steps they have to go through, right? They have to have the cameras kind of focused in on your table and then they actually have to record the cards, right? And then they can go back and see if you're counting. But if you take off, they have nothing to verify and then they'll just forget about you. Um, so yeah, it's about keeping your session shorter, taking off when, as soon as you feel any tension and just really trying to limit the perception that you're a winner, you know, just little things that you can do. Don't let your chips pile up in front of you, you know, because everyone can see that, right? And just put them in your pocket. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of these things with the, the whole art of it. But probably the biggest thing you can do, what will enable you to do all of that most effectively is just having a really high skill level. Because when your skill level is really high, then you can multitask and do all these other things versus, you know, I've met people in the casino surveillance industry and, and they talk, they kind of laugh about, sometimes they identify like amateur card counters who are, haven't practiced enough and they're so focused. And then sometimes they don't even realize they're actually mouthing the count, <laughs> for example. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of general advice on how to fly under the, the radar. But there's no like one single like silver bullet that will enable you to do that. Sweet. Hey, c Mike, you want to get one last one off? Uh, honestly, I think the other guys got all the uh, main points I wanted to get covered and like, did a great job summarizing it so i'm i'm all set well i will say one thing i know i said at the start shouts out to c-mac for organizing this man i'm really really glad we met this was sweet yeah mike thank you for taking the time i know i said it a couple times but we do have to really important so. hey um yeah mike, thanks for having me so we have two show bits and i need you to use that calculated brain just to execute these flawlessly. The first one is called GDP sales mode. So I'm gonna count down and I'm gonna give you 40 seconds to pitch whatever you wanna pitch, whether it's like your consulting career or it's like positive words of wisdom or possibly the pilot <laughs> we were talking about. We're gonna cut that up in a 40 second clip. We're giving you the floor to say whatever you want. And then I'll discuss the second bit right afterwards but i'm gonna give you a countdown of five seconds does that work sure okay five four three two one sales mode go <laughs> well as a former professional gambler i think i've adopted that into my whole philosophy for life and i think it, it really comes down to if you want to maximize your life you just have to make rational and conscious decisions, right? That kind of are in line with what you want to accomplish. And it's about maximizing ROI. And that's not just strictly financial, right? I think what I've learned kind of the hard way, it's also do things that you really enjoy, right? Because there's different types of returns in life. And when I look back, I think that's probably 
that's it's like the simplest thing that most people don't do and i didn't do for the longest time is just getting really clear on what's important to you and what you want to accomplish and then from that point on just seeking matches you know to that right and and what your your goals are and what's important to you it's okay if that changes it will change like over time so that type of i'm all about data and information right whether it's a playing blackjack or making business decisions but you know the most important information you could argue is really just defining what it is you want to out of life right time Short, intermediate long term. sorry to cut you off but that was like really profound man thank you <laughs> <laughs> sure sure yeah hopefully trying to help people not make uh be a little bit more efficient in their life path than i've been so. well well dude what you had told me about gauging the audience in the podcast is going to be wildly helpful so thank you very much for that yeah i'm just curious do you have any what are there any topics that you guys haven't done that you're thinking would be interesting i, I don't think right now it's it's so much topics. I actually think it's how the content's formulated because it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to grab someone obviously off a 30 second clip, but I I've forever had this idea that I, I want to grow the show with integrity and I don't want to just do like a bunch of clickbaity shit, you know, like look what professional blackjack player said about Hollywood movie that tarnished his career. Like I never want to do that. You know what I'm saying? So it's been interesting trying to find yeah. the balance between being attention grabby, but also being a good dude about things. Yeah, no, that's, that's smart. I, yeah. People really are gravitated long. To, it's going to to authenticity. Right. So. Thank you, man. Um, so this is how we start and end the show. You gotta say, hi, your name. I'm Mike Aponte, MIT Mike. And this is my golden hour directly after with no break in between hi your name and that was my golden hour so hi my name is micah ponte this is my golden hour bang followed by hi my name is micah ponte and that was my golden hour correct oh, perfect man <laughs> <laughs> hey uh thank you so much for doing this for us yeah, thanks so much for having me, man. Good luck with everything, all your pursuits. When we uh, get off the phone, I'll get your number. I'm going to shoot you out a new sweatshirt. I know it's like wicked warm in Culver City, but if you ever need a sweater, man. <laughs> yeah, and also I'm curious. So you're you're into, uh, uh, I mean, you could cut this out, but you're into writing, into film writing, right? I heard from Chris. Chris, you're a snitch. <laughs> Anyway, I'd be curious, like when I'm, I'm done with my second, second slash third draft of my pilot, yeah, I'd like to send it to you, kind of get your feedback, I think. Given you have a writing background, kind of your interest, be cool. Um, and when, if you're open to that, and when you do get it, please be super harsh. Uh, I love harshness you know I, I have like i'm not a sensitive guy i'm much more interested in you know what can be improved i'm not one of those types that's gonna get upset <laughs> well mike i'll tell you some news i'm gonna be finishing the fourth draft of my most recent screenplay in probably a week and so we'll exchange screenplays 
Oh, great. What's it, what's it about? I'll tell you when I send it to you, man. <laughs> keep the surprise. Yeah. Keep the surprise going. So, Hey, well, All thank right. you so much for this and we'll likely drop this by Thursday. Okay. Awesome. I All right, Mike. Thank you so much, man. Yep. Take care, guys.